This is Mind Your Mornings with Anna Chandy, a fortnightly podcast that takes you on the journey to a brave new you. Hello and welcome to the second season of Mind Your Morning. In this series, we will be looking at mental health from within. Now there's a new wave of awareness and with it several questions. With the support of the team at Anna Chandy and Associates and our gracious clients, we've decided to uncover some of the mysteries that plague mental health. So together let's explore various perspectives from people who have experienced therapy, from caregivers and from therapists themselves. Perspectives from a decade ago to now and from Gen X to Gen Z. Hi, I'm Brian back again with another conversation to discover a new perspective from inside the therapy room today i'm here to talk about the inner lives of two generations who are rarely understood and often labeled fickle millennials and gen z the ones who grew up in digital spaces but long for greenery the ones who find it difficult to stick to a job but are committed to long term resource conservation the ones who are desperately seeking love but are often inhibited by their own search for meaning the urban millennials and gen z for whom the world is a buzz of success acquaintances socializing but also immense loneliness what is going on with the young people and how does it impact them their mental health relationships and friendships today we get a window into that world with farha farha is an associate counselor at anna chandy and associates an early millennial herself farah has worked closely with individuals from the ages of 25 to 35 over the last 3 years this gives her an astute view into their lives and the meaning they make and with her we have her client iman iman is in his late 20s which certifies him as a late millennial he works with a multinational climbing quickly to success over the last couple of years he has been seeing farah for over a year and a half and would love to share his journey with all of us today welcome farah and iman so lovely to have you on the show thank you brian i'm happy to be here thank you i am very nervous to be here so a year and a half which means counseling through the pandemic have you two ever met or ever had a in person counseling session uh, we've not met in person but once uh, the restrictions were over we met for dinner So Iman what brought you to therapy was this your first time Ah uh, yes it was it was my first time I think I started in November of 2020 and not because I thought I needed to do therapy but I didn't know what else to do which is why I thought of therapy so we'd been working from home since like mid March I think so that meant I was spending a lot of my time either at home or with a roommate who I didn't really get along with too well and you know there was just it was just sort of trapped inside that one house right so a lot of my friends were and started telling me by then that you know I'd started drinking a lot and that's normally something that someone in their mid late 20s would be very excited about and proud of like oh, yeah, like I can hold my drink the whole evening and and all of that but slowly the the tone of that started to change a little bit and I don't think I realized that the tone had changed until October I think but i kept telling myself like i'm in control and i know what i'm doing and they don't know what they're talking about because it's my life and you know i know how much liquor is going into my body etc but i think it bothered me a little bit that people were saying this 
so i did start to pay a little bit of attention you know to just how much i was drinking and that's when i started to realize i had started going down a bit of a dangerous path and you know separately a few of my friends had been telling me that you know you should try therapy because a few things had had gone a little south in life so i said okay cool i'll try it uh, but i really thought of therapy as something that was just going to help me stop drinking so it was like i talked with a therapist and they gave me five ways of stopping or reducing the amount of liquor i was consuming and that was going to be it that's that's what i thought of therapy as in fact before our first session i think parah had texted me the day before saying hey look we have a session tomorrow and whatever i'm looking forward to speaking and i just i turned to my my friend who was with me at the time and i was like i don't think i can do this because i don't know what to say to her for an entire hour but anyway it obviously worked out well and it was my first time doing therapy that was your question yes <laughs> farah what was your experience like what did you gather from that first session with iman so iman uh, came in with a very specific problem of a very strong dependence on alcohol and um, i think my first thoughts were that how can i help this person when i have not had alcohol ever in my life so i don't even know what it feels like to have a drink and how does it feel to be drunk so uh, you know can i even understand this person let alone help him out but uh, yeah you know i think it was about going back to those fundamentals of therapists don't know everything and they're not all knowing and um, i leaned in heavily onto my supervisors i read a lot while i uh, went on to work with different you know ideas of therapy but uh, different fundamentals but i think i stuck to that one fundamental which is that establishing a very strong relationship with my client and then we went on to unearth a lot of stuff what iman bought in as his main issue also you know is something which came up for a lot of people because with the onset of covid and lockdown a lot of people had moved to drinking at home and so from a social going out and drinking it had moved to a home setup and a lot of people were drinking a lot more and it was going quite unchecked you know so a lot of people in fact it's not just the man a lot of people had issues and you know there was a lot of stemming issues of domestic violence and other manifestations of it that came with this excess drinking that happened at home i think in the first session what i gathered was that while alcohol uh, seems to be the problem but it's actually just the symptom uh, of something deeper or something bigger but of course you know it was too big to confront uh, in the first couple of sessions so he was using alcohol as a coping mechanism as an escape mechanism and we went on to discover the root cause of it in our subsequent sessions got it and uh, iman what would you say was the root cause that triggered this condition it's a long story but i think just like stuff that i figured out over the last year and a half or so but i think at that point i i was going through a bit of a tough time late 2019 on november december you know i figured out that someone who had been seeing for you know about three and a half years had a little something going on on the side with my roommate at the time so you know that wasn't the best experience i at that time i think i, I said i'm going to walk away i'm not going to make a big deal of this you know they like i wanted to be the bigger person the more mature one and i was like they've already made that decision 
whatever my reaction is, that decision isn't going to change. So I was trying to be, I was trying to be normal and we're talking about millennials and Gen Z. So I'm trying to be chill about it. But I think that, that took a bit of a toll on me because I was suppressing a lot of things that I actually wanted to get out uh, of my system. And, and it wasn't as simple as I thought it was going to be. But I, I couldn't confide in others because, you know, various reasons. And I, I felt like I couldn't talk to people about this. And I think that's that's what I was releasing through alcohol. I was drinking at the end of every evening to to feel better about whatever had happened. Yeah, the whole experience must have been very, very traumatic and painful for you. Uh, yeah, it, it was. And, you know, I, th- I think all of us worked together at, at that point as well. So at home, in office, like, it was just the same group everywhere. And, and I felt like there was no escape to that you know, that situation at that point. Um, I think that's a very interesting point that Iman makes. There was no other escape. So it really comes down to the spaces men have to express themselves. Can they cry? Not surely, because uh, they can be laughed at. And uh, can they confide in their male friends? Not without being considered weak. So um, it's not the same for women. They cry, they talk, it's more normalized, it's more acceptable in that sense. So men, what do they do? They turn to these two, three behaviors. They either get angry, they go silent, or they turn to humor. Yeah. Did you think, Farah, and, and, and for Iman as well, the whole concept of drinking, and uh, not socially really, but drinking quite heavily until you're punch drunk, is that something that has been normalized, do you think, in the current generation? For sure, yes, it it has, and I think it's, but it's still drinking heavily socially. That's normal. Mm. Right? Uh, so if you're drinking with a few friends, then drinking very heavily until you know you're, uh, you're absolutely out of it is is quite normal. Mm. But drinking alone, and I mean like even having one or two drinks alone, is mm. still looked at as oh my god, you started drinking alone. Now you're having a drink without anybody else so we're going to label you an alcoholic uh, so you can go out every single day and get absolutely drunk and that's fine because there's other people there mm. you have one drink at home and you're an alcoholic it's right. it's a bit of a twisted and evolving situation at the moment right farah actually talked about you know a couple of behaviors that men typically indulge in when they're going through a rough time you know she talked about getting angry, going absolutely silent. Some of them turn to humor and perhaps trivializing it. How did you respond to the situation you were in, Iman? I think I hit the trifecta uh, all at at different points in time. So there were obviously times when I was extremely angry and and I showed my anger. Uh, When I couldn't show it, I would express it in other unhealthier ways. I made lots of jokes about all of the things that were happening you know, to try and sort of play it down. And sometimes, yeah, I was, like I said, it was just silence because I didn't know what to say. I didn't know who to say something to. But I think over the last last year and a half or so, you know, Farah has given me that language to process what I'm feeling. I don't think I could label what I was feeling until, until very recently. And I, I, I think I joke about this with Farah a lot. I'm like, don't make me aware of things I don't want to know. It just makes it a little more, more complicated. But it is helpful to know what you're feeling and why you're feeling it. Right? So she's, she's definitely given me that. But mm-hmm. also through over the last few years, I've, I've started to discover where my insecurities started. 
So when I was younger, I wasn't that interested in studies. I was doing really badly in school because I wouldn't pay attention in class. I wouldn't do my homework. And that made my parents worry for me. But I think their way of showing that worry and that concern didn't agree with me because I felt like I was constantly being punished because I wasn't good enough. That, I think, has carried forward into adulthood a little bit. So, you know, I'm constantly asking myself, like, are you good enough? Do you have to put in, you know, extra just, just to be able to fit in? And, and are people going to be angry with me if I don't? It's stuff like that, you know, we've been able to uncover through therapy of last year and a half. But when I look back on all of that now and, and when I see it with the lens that I have been given now, I recognize what those feelings are. I recognize where those insecurities come from. It comes from a place of abandonment and this feeling of rejection. Yeah, but the other thing that I turned to was, was obviously the class clown. And that behavior, I think I've still got and I haven't gotten rid of yet. Uh, I think I'm still trying to be funny. Um, but uh, it's, it's the only way I figured, like, you know, there would be acceptance and that need for acceptance is, is very much that. Got it. Farah, uh, can you sort of speak to Iman's journey itself, how the transformation occurred? So, you know, Brian, uh, Iman has covered one significant one, which is that, you know, in the beginning, I used to find it very unusual that he's talking about these very uh, painful sometimes experiences from childhood and he'd joke about them. Sometimes I notice that uh, he has a really good set of friends and where he works, he's got a lot of colleagues uh, who, who also hang out socially. And sometimes I would find it very strange how he would go out of his way to help people out. And, you know, I put it across to him that I think he's earned that tag of Mr. Dependable, driving drunk people around at four in the morning, someone asking him for help at very odd hours, and he would turn up. and. I started asking him that isn't it a little unusual because while I know that he's a genuinely helpful and a nice person, very caring, but that going out of the way seemed unusual, you know, and then we realized that it actually comes from a feeling of wanting to belong and that fear of rejection, which made him do it. And unfortunately, that is something that a lot of the millennials and Gen Z are experiencing. They're living with it, you know. And uh, there is a blurring of boundaries, uh, not just in terms of seeking help, and but even in relationships, there's a certain frivolity that has come in. There's a certain non-seriousness which has come in. And, and there seems to be an almost amorphous space, you know, boundaryless space in which all of them coexist sometimes parasitically of each other. But, uh, you know, we must not forget that where there are takers, there are givers. And the mix of two is very toxic. One is ready to manipulate to get good, and the other one is ready to get manipulated for acceptance. Yeah. No, that's a very important point you're uh, making, Farah. Blurred boundaries. Can you tell us a little bit about that and dwell on where these blurring of boundaries stems from? Yeah, so, you know, from my experience, my take has been that this generation is very confused and, you know, very torn because they're still lightly tethered to the values, the family values that they have grown up with. And then, uh, you know, uh, then there are these new uh, 
this new environment that they have been nudged into. It's a very progressive environment. And, uh, you know, I speak about it only from a social lens, the place where they work, their peers, their exposure, their social media, and they, they all want to be part of it. They all want to try it. And, you know, they want to belong to it. So somewhere what happens is that's not entirely who they are. So they're very confused. So they have a fantasy of that ideal world, but their experience is disappointing. And so a lot of them carry within them an emptiness, a lack of purpose and direction. So what this leads to is fleeting temporary pleasures, sex, drugs, alcohol, etc., instead of fulfilling experiences. And I think somewhere that uh, the FOMO, the fear of missing out and the fear of rejection, you know, they choose instant gratification over nurturing, building, and comparatively delayed gratifications. Got it. Yeah. Iman, how would you respond to what Farah has been telling us? So, um, it's come up in therapy a lot, so I have had lots of time to think about this. But I, I think I've I had my fair share of these one-night stands and alcohol and, you know, other things that would give you temporary or instant gratification. But none of that really helped for more than a day or, you know, for or, or more than an evening because when you sort of wake up or when that had high sort of ends, the emptiness that you were trying to get rid of uh, sort of wakes up with you. Uh, and then you have to carry that along the rest of the day. Farah referred to me as earning that Mr. Dependable tag, which, you know, at first I thought was something to be really proud of because I was that friend that you could call whenever you needed and I'd be there, I'd make myself available to you. And I did realize, I think, over a period of time that, you know, there were people who possibly could be taking advantage of that. Uh, and that made me extremely angry. But I couldn't get myself to say no to them because, mm. like, you know, I felt helpless. And I felt like if I say no to my friend, then I may not have a friend after this. And I think it, it got to a stage where I was making myself more available to other people than I was to myself. And that's also around the time when I started to realize that I'd become a bit of a risk to myself. I was drinking and I was smoking very heavily. I didn't care too much about, about my life. And, you know, there's there's a conversation that, that Farah and I were having and I was telling her that I know that cigarettes and, and the alcohol are really bad for me. And she asked me that, if you know that, why don't you just stop? Or why don't you make an effort to cut down? And I realized then that I think I was sort of punishing myself for indulging in behaviors that weren't the best for me by indulging in behaviors that weren't the best for me, right? It was, it was mm-hmm. a very weird, paradoxical sort of punishment that, that was happening. But I was punishing myself and doing things to myself that would bring harm to me. And I was careless about the way I was living because I honestly didn't care about it. And, and I thought neither did anyone else. So, mm-hmm. you know, no harm, no foul. Correct. Yeah. And uh, it's ironical that he was abandoning himself again and again and again, only to be accepted by others, which was, I thought, the biggest paradox. Yeah, it took me a while to realize it, I think. But I, I honestly owe a lot of this right now to Farah because at, at one point I genuinely thought that, you know, the kind of behaviors I was indulging in, the kind of things that I was doing, I didn't think I'd, I'd make it past, you know, a certain time. And I think we've crossed that time. So mm-hmm. I, I do owe 
a lot of my life to para right now. The change in the way I felt in my own home from being like an unhappy hiding place to being a place that I enjoyed being in a place that I enjoyed, you know, doing things in and, and calling people over and doing it up so that it felt like home. I owe a lot of that to Farah. Thank you, Farah. Great. So Farah, clearly some of the behaviors, alcoholism, other self-destructive behaviors, suicidal tendencies are areas that are grave areas of concern and danger to individuals and to societies in general. How does one respond to this? Are there some guidelines? So, um, Brian, I'd like to start by saying this, that addiction, and I use the word addiction here because, you know, we're talking about it for a larger audience. Addiction is a relationship between a person and an object or activity and quite an intense relationship. Think of it as a coping mechanism or a self-medication, if you will, to numb out that uh, underlying pain. And it starts out, it always starts out as a feel-good experience, which slowly turns into a repetitive behavior. Despite, you know, you can see those adverse consequences. Despite that, you tend to continue them. So imagine that something that starts from a place of self-care or self-indulgence, slowly oh, you're getting comfortable. So you start with one drink socially, then it becomes two, maybe three because you're home. And then before you know it, it's insidiously gotten into a space where it becomes self-sabotage. And with Iman, I remember we spoke about this, that, you know, what started out as indulgence and self-care moved to a place where it was harming you and you were becoming reckless about it. And this is again for the larger audience that while there are conventional and known forms of addiction uh, related to substance, drugs, alcohol, etc., caffeine, food, uh, all of that, there are actually several other forms of addiction that actually go unnoticed. And uh, some of them are activity addictions. So video games, online poker, gambling, compulsive cleaning, work, workaholism, shopping. People call it retail therapy, but it isn't that. And thought addiction. So a lot of religion, spiritual addiction, and uh, fantasy, guilt loop, rigid thinking, obsessions are all part of thinking addictions uh, or thought addictions. People addiction, relationships, sex, codependency, power, violence, groupism, all comes under power addiction. And feeling addiction, uh, you know, hate, anger, rage, jealousy, grief, shame, etc. These are all feeling addictions. And when you broaden up, you know, the definition of addiction to include all of these, you know, this is a question for the larger audience, which is, have you had a brush with addiction? And uh, I'm sure everybody will be thinking about this because it's not just the conventional alcohol and drugs. Okay, I promise not to drink anymore. It's about, I know how much is okay for me. So it's about calibration. It's about a self-check to know when it's moving from healthy consumption to unhealthy. So, you know, it's about having that self-check, self-regulation. You know, there is a certain shame associated with the word addiction that does not let people come forth with the issue, the presenting issue. So I think to tell people that it is okay And if you step up and if you seek the right interventions, addiction is completely manageable. 
while there are no false promises of reversing it, but it is about making it manageable so that it moves from an unhealthy space into something which you can do socially. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. I can feel that as well, of course, with, with people of your generation, but even with people of my generation. So when, like I said earlier on, that when Iman came in and the presenting issue, I was like, oh my God, this is not going to last because I didn't think of myself as potent enough to manage this, but just went with my gut. And I was just sure of one thing that I'm going to provide him a space. And that continues to be something that, you know, I I believe in and I work on, which is that this is going to be one space for him where he's not going to be judged where he's, he doesn't need to fear abandonment. And we've been through some very tough episodes. And uh, I'm sure there have been times when Iman has thought that, okay, so that's it from Farah. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we just stuck on. We just stuck on. And the relationship between a client and a therapist is so precious. It is so precious. And while I am so proud of Iman, I'd like to tell him this that, you know, there's so much I have learned from him. Not just factual stuff about this generation, <laughs> because sometimes I'm really like, really, is this how you guys are doing it these days? Not just that, but also, you know, the way he operates. Uh, you know, so I really admire him uh, along with being proud of him. So, yeah. So thank you, uh, Farah and Iman, for coming on the show and sharing your feelings very openly. And of course, the sharp insights that you shared. This has really been a, a, an amazing conversation with a lot of insights beyond what uh, the typical articles cover on what millennials really want. So thank you. Thank you both. This is Mind Your Mornings with Anna Chandy, a fortnightly podcast that takes you on the journey to a brave new you.